go ahead and grab a seat. Grab a seat and... Um, I want to begin by saying that this is going to be a very exciting morning. It already has been an exciting morning at Overlake because we're trying an experiment. And I, I say that, I need to let you know, it's an experiment in the sense that experiments, um, they can go wrong occasionally. And, and so far, this hasn't gone wrong. But, but if you know it's an experiment, if, if it does go wrong, there's grace in the room. And, and uh, I trust that will happen. Uh, the deal is this. We have the opportunity to learn from and be challenged by a man named Shane Claiborne. And Shane Claiborne, if you don't know him, he's the author of The Irresistible Revolution and Jesus for President. And uh, he's, he's a great communicator, just kind of radically loves Jesus. He radically loves the poor. And um, I first heard that he was coming to Overlake through our student ministries. Our student ministries pastor, Rory, had reached out to Shane and invited Shane to come and to be a part of their programming in our student ministries, world-class ministry down the hall. And, and so Shane agreed to come and to be part of this pinnacle service for our student ministries. And when I heard that, I was like, yes, I love Shane. I want all of Overlake to be challenged by what Shane has to bring. But as the lead pastor of Overlake, I also want to honor our student ministries. And believe it or not, it's not honoring to steal their guest speaker for us. And so we're going to try this experiment. And, and, and it worked really well in the first service. I trust it will work in this service. Shane is down the hall, and he is speaking to our students. And we are going to pipe that message in here, and we are going to listen in, and we're going to be challenged as well. Now... Technology is a beautiful thing, but it can also be a little quirky. So if it goes out, I'll be back up and do a little tap dancing, okay? <laughs> but I think we're ready to roll. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to give such a warm Overlake welcome right now to Shane that he can hear it all the way down the hall, okay? Let's do that. All right. It's so good to be with the student ministry and with all the old people via satellite, um, but it's great to be here. I'm from, uh, I came from Philly. I've lived there for 20 years, and I'll tell you about that. But I, I grew up in Tennessee, and uh, in case you can't tell. And uh, I, I remember hearing a story growing up about a homeless guy that came to worship. And this homeless guy, he, uh, he came to kind of the fancy church, you know. And so he, but he, he didn't have much to wear. He just had his clothes that he had on his back and his winter jacket, had a bunch of bags with him. But he came because he wanted to worship God. So he came and sat up front. And sadly, everybody sort of looked at him like he didn't quite belong. And uh, the pastor came up to him and said, Sir, I don't know if you've been here before, but this is the house of God. I want you to do something. I want you to go out this week and ask God what you should wear when you come to church. And the homeless guy left kind of awkward, you know, and then the next week, though, uh, he came back. And he came back the same way he had the week before, had, had all of his clothes on and his bags with him, sat down, and the pastor saw him before the service and said, Sir, I asked you to do something uh, this week. I recognize you. And uh, did you do what I asked you to do? And the homeless guy said, Yeah, pastor, I asked God what I should wear. And uh, God said he didn't know because he's never been to your church. I, I, it's kind of sassy, you know, I, I like, but, but 
we know, I think, how good we are at making people feel excluded in the church. And it's a shame because Jesus just magnetized people who were on the margins and who were excluded. Uh, and, and yet, we haven't always been as, as good at that uh, in the church. I, I remember a survey was done just a few years ago. The Barna Research Group, this big research polling company, they went to every state in the U.S., and they asked young non-Christians, what do you think of when you hear the word Christian? The number one answer was anti-gay, anti-homosexual. Number two, uh, the second most popular answer was that Christians are judgmental. And number three is Christians are hypocrites. I'll stop there because the list doesn't get much better. You know, and, it, and the pe- things that people said, it broke my heart what we've often become known for, you know. Uh, and, and what also broke my heart was what people did not say. And they didn't say the very thing that Jesus said they will know you are Christians by, which is I'm glad you knew the answer to that. Love, right? Love. They'll know you're Christians by our love. But we uh, have often been known more in our culture for who we've excluded more than who we've included, more for what we're against than what we're for. But I think that's changing because I think there's a whole movement of folks right now that want a Christianity that looks like Jesus again and that's known for love. And so what happened to me was I, you know, I grew up in the church and I felt like the church told me, uh, they kind of taught me what to believe, but they didn't exactly teach me how to live. And I've been trying to figure out the last 20 years what it really means, not just to believe in Jesus, but to follow him. And I, I, for me, that really began with not just ideas, but with having new eyes. And I want to tell you about one of the first experiences I had as we moved into North Philadelphia. We moved into a neighborhood that's got a a lot of struggles, and there's a lot of community and beautiful things, but there's also a lot of pain because our our neighborhood was built around factories that moved out, and we've lost 150,000 jobs. We've got 20,000 abandoned houses. There's a lot of folks living on the street, Uh, and and that's, for us, it made a lot of sense to live there because there's a lot of space to show love, and um, but one of my first experiences was we were walking from our house to the grocery store. And in order to get there, we have to walk down Kensington Avenue, which was uh, is sort of our red light district. It's notorious for the drug trafficking and prostitution along the avenue. A lot of pain on Kensington Ave. And so I'm, we're walking there. My buddy, my, my housemate and I, Michelle and I, were walking to the store. And this woman on the avenue propositions me. As a, as a woman caught in the sex trafficking, and, and I had never had that happen much. I felt pretty awkward and just sort of stumbled through saying no, and we beelined onto the store and came back to the house. But when we get back to the house, we unload all the groceries we have got, we, we got and I noticed that the loaf of bread had a tear in the side, and all the bread was kind of crusty and moldy. And uh, I said to Michelle, I said, oh, geez, I got a bad loaf of bread. And she's like, oh, no problem. I got the receipt. We'll go back. And I'm like, awesome. You know, that means we're going to have to walk back the same way. So we go and we exchange our loaf of bread, no problem. But then on the way back, we see that woman again. And this time she's down in an alleyway and she just kind of hunkered down, shivering in the cold. And we look at each other and we know full well, we can't just pass her by, right? So we go down and we, we, we bend down and we start talking to her and we, we ask her a name and she starts sharing some of her story and she's got tears rolling down her face and we can tell she's cold. So we said, wait, why don't you, if you want to, you can come back to our place. And it's a safe place. Um, it's warm. 
if you're hungry, we got some good food, got some good bread, you know. And, and so she jumps up, she follows us back to the house. And as soon as she comes into our house, she just starts weeping. And I mean, she is just weeping and weeping. And Michelle's just rocking her in her arms. And as this woman um, kind of gathers herself, she looks up and she says the strangest thing. She goes, you guys are Christians, aren't you? And we're like, whoa. I look at my shirt. Nope. Uh, and I like, I start thinking, you know, we don't have a sign outside saying repent or burn. You know, like, like how does she know that we're Christians? So I said, how do you know? We, we, we are. We love Jesus. And she said, I know because I can see it in your eyes. And I can feel it in your love. And she said, I used to be so in love with Jesus that I, I used to shine like that too. She said, I used to shine like the stars in the sky. But it's a cold, dark world. And I've sort of lost my shine. And uh, we, we wrapped her arms around her. We prayed that she would feel that fire begin to burn in her again. You know, that she would feel the, the, the love of God and, and that she would hear that whisper we all need to hear, that she is beloved and beautiful, a child of God. And, and that night she left, and we didn't know if we'd see her again. And weeks and weeks passed, and then one night there's a knock at the door, and I answered the door because we get, we get a lot of knocks at the door, so I didn't think anything of it. But I opened the door, and this woman jumps into the house. She's like, hey! I'm like, whoa, do we know each other, you know? And she's like, yeah, but you just don't recognize me because I'm shining again. I'm a new woman. I knew who she was then, you know, and she's still talking 100 miles an hour. She's like, I wanted to come back, and I wanted to say thank you for reaching out when I was really, really hurting. And she said, I wanted to give you a little gift, but I don't have much. And almost apologetically, you know, defensively, she goes, I don't have much to give you, but I want to give you what I have. And I did smoke a lot of cigarettes when I was on the street. And I always collected the Marlboro miles from the sides of the cigarette boxes because you can trade them in for stuff. And she goes, hold on. She goes out the car and she comes back with this shoebox that I can tell is just like boiling over with Marlboro miles, right? And she goes, they're all yours. (laughs) And I'm like awesome. I'm going to get me a new like Marlboro backpack or something. It's going to be great. And, uh, and yet I think it's like one of the best gifts I've ever been given, given from her heart. And uh, I came to find out later, they make really good page markers for your Bible. And that's what I use them for, you know, and every time I, I open up my Bible, I, I see that Marlboro mile and I'm reminded that we have a God that is loving people back to life. That's what God does, right? And somehow we get to be a part of that story. We get to have new eyes to see that, that every person is created in the image of God, no, much, no matter how much this world has tried to convince them otherwise, right? I was talking to my, one of my buddies about that because he's, yeah, he's, he always likes to argue, though. He likes to argue theology. You know those people like that, right? Um, if you don't know those people, you probably are those people. But he, he's always wanting to argue theology. And I tell him the story I just told you. And he says, oh, well, you know, the, the incredible thing about Jesus is he, he never really talked to a prostitute. I'm like, hold on, man. I get my Bible out. I'm ready. You know, I know my word. I'm ready to throw down low. And so I, I start talking. And he says, no, 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 listen, listen. Hear me out. Jesus never talked to a prostitute because he didn't see a prostitute. He just saw a child that he was in love with. And I thought, I told him, okay, you win, but only this one time, you know. And, and I think, like, what would the, the world look like if we were able to see each other with the eyes of Jesus, right? If we were able to experience, I think right now we're living in a time where this world is just so starved for grace. 
And I don't know how we missed this story because, like, it's, it's all through the Bible. Like, one of my favorite stories is about the woman caught in the middle of adultery. Do you know this story? Like, it, it doesn't start well. Apparently, she's been caught in adultery, and she's drugged before the entire town and humiliated. Um, it was a, a death penalty crime, so it was a death-worthy crime. So everybody's getting ready to kill her, and legally they had the right to do it. All the men have stones in their hand. They're, they're in a circle around this woman, getting ready to kill her, and Jesus just interrupts the scene with grace, and it's beautiful. The, the sort of strange part in the beginning is that he goes into the middle and he starts digging in the dirt. And uh, we were asking some of the kids, like, what's up with that? You know, what, what do you think? Jesus was putting in the dirt and uh, one of the kids said maybe he was riding in the dirt if this doesn't work run woman <laughs> maybe you know I don't, we don't know what he was writing in the dirt but what we do know is what he did next and what he did next is it just stunned them all he said let the one who is without sin cast the first stone and of course he reminds them and all of us, that if we've looked at someone with lust in our eyes, we're, we've committed adultery in our hearts. If we've called someone a fool, then we're guilty of murder. That, that we actually, none of us are beyond, none of us is beyond redemption and none of us is above reproach. And all the men start to drop their stones and they walk away. And it's a great ending to the story. Jesus and the woman are there and he's like, where'd they all go? And you get the sense that the only one who had any right to throw a stone, had absolutely no desire. That the closer we are to God, the less we want to throw stones at other people. We become moved by the grace that we've experienced, and it should make us gracious people in the world. But we haven't always lived into that. And I think sometimes it's because we get the story wrong. You know, we, we end up, uh, we, 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 we look, read the Bible and we miss parts of it because, like, it, this is a story of grace, right? You look at like David. I learned in Sunday school that David was a man after God's own heart. On good days, but he had some bad days too. If you read the story of David, right? Like David ends up committing adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. In fact, he takes her uh, and uh, takes her from her husband, co commits adultery with her, and then ends up having her husband killed to cover up what he'd done. In, in like two chapters of the Bible, he breaks pretty much every one of the Ten Commandments. He lies about it. You know, he, he ends up uh, doing all of this stuff, and then he hears the rebuke of his friend Nathan. He like gets just hammered with God's grace. And he goes on to write so many of the Psalms. David, this adulterer, and by the way, when he took Bathsheba, he already had like six wives. I mean, the brother had a problem, you know? And yet, like, he is one of the folks that we now know was a, a part of this story. We think of someone like Saul of Tarsus. Saul by every definition, Saul of Tarsus was a terrorist. He went door to door trying to kill Christians. He oversaw, in the book of Acts, he oversaw the first execution of the first martyr, a young man named Stephen, right? And yet, the next chapter, Stephen cries out, Father, forgive him, for he doesn't know what he's doing. He'd heard that before. And the next chapter is the radical conversion of Saul. As he hears Jesus say, why are you hurting me? And, and he, he, he gets such a radical conversion that he changes his name from Saul to Paul and goes on to write half of the New Testament. So if we believe a terrorist is beyond redemption, we can rip out half the New Testament because it was written by one, right? this Bible would be much shorter 
without grace. And yet that grace, it, it, always, it doesn't always come instinctively to us, you know. That's why I like Peter. Peter, you know, the, the disciple Peter, when the soldiers come for Jesus, his response is not grace. I mean, he's heard, Peter heard the Sermon on the Mount from the man himself, right? But then the soldiers come, and Peter instinctively picks up a sword, cuts off one of the dude's ears. I think probably the first thing Jesus did was say, Peter, work on your aim. <laughs> no, just kidding. You know, you, but he, uh, he like, Jesus' response is he scolds Peter and he says, no, you pick up the sword, you die by the sword. Like, put your sword back. You still don't get it. This is a love movement, right? And, uh, and then he takes the ear of that dude and puts it back on, right? Crazy, right? I think of that guy's story like that night. Um, he's having dinner with his family. You know, kids, how was your day? Kids are like, oh, okay, got a lot of math homework. How's your day, Dad? Dad's like, weird. You know, we went to arrest this dude, one of his bros, cut my ear off, and then the dude we came to arrest put my ear back on. I mean, he was scarred by that grace, right? This love that is so radical. And I, I think of, what, 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 that, that's, that's why, like, one of my friends said, maybe we got the translation wrong. We think of Peter as the rock. That's what his name means. Peter, the rock on which you'll build my church. Um, but she said, maybe we got the translation wrong, and it's actually, Peter, you're as dumb as a rock, but I'll still build my church on you. Because he's always making mistakes, you know, but that's part of the good news is that, like, I'm sure at any point if Peter started to think, like, a little too highly of himself, and he's like, I am the rock of the church, I'm sure all the disciples would have been like, dude, remember the day you cut that dude's ear off? stupid you know like but that like this story is not about how good we are but it's about how good God is and God works uh, through the brokenness the cracks of our lives right I got I got a buddy that's a youth pastor and um he was uh, driving the kids, the young high school students to this retreat. And these are kids from the inner city. They're going out to the sticks. And he was like, I'm not sure if they're going to connect with the message and stuff, but we're going to do it. So they're driving out. And on the way out there, they had a flat tire in the van. And he said it went from bad to worse. Like the spare tire didn't fit. It was pouring rain. He's like, eventually something snapped. And I lost it, man. He said, I started punching the van and cussing it out. And all my young people are just looking at me like I'm crazy. And I was, you know, and he said, uh, and so finally we get, you know, the car fixed, AAA and all that. And then they, he said, we went on the retreat. All the kids are really awkwardly silent. And we drive there, you know, and you're like, dude, that was rough. Yeah, yeah. And they get to the retreat. He said one of his toughest kids dedicated his life to Christ that night. And they were debriefing a little bit. And he's like, what was it, man? Was it something in the message? Was it the worship? And, he was like, and the kid was like, nah, man, it was on the way up there. When I saw you snap, man, you started cussing the van out. And I thought, if Jesus can save you, Jesus can save me too. <laughs> Jesus can save anybody, man. But that's the good news, right? And so I think as we think of the world we live in, it's a world that's just starved for grace. I've, I've been writing a book on grace and studying the death penalty because I think one of the questions the death penalty raises is, is, is anybody beyond redemption? And I got to know this guy named Billy Neil Moore. It's a really interesting story because I mean, it's, it's he's had a hard life. And he came back from the Vietnam War. He's a veteran. Came back from the Vietnam War and had all kinds of problems, not the least of which was he didn't have any money, and so he's trying to figure out how to make it, and he and one of his army buddies decided to rob a house, and it was a terrible idea that got even worse. He never had had any criminal history or anything, but they thought they could rob this house pretty easily, so they tried, but through the course of that, the, homeowner, the man that owned the home was killed, 
And Billy Nilmore was so haunted by what he did that he wanted to kill himself. He turned himself in immediately, went to jail, and he tried to kill himself in prison. He faced the death penalty, but he wanted to die because he said, I, like, I, what, I, what we did was so wrong. Like, if I could push the, the button on my own execution, I would do it. But then there was an interruption. The victim's family, the family of the man who was killed, reached out to Billy and they said, listen, hey, we hate what you did. You took someone we love from us and we'll, that, that pain will never go away. And they said, but we want you to know we believe in Jesus. And that means we believe in redemption. We believe in second chances. We believe that your worst decision doesn't have to determine the rest of your life. We, we think God has a plan for your life. And so they argued uh, against his execution. They became his family. And in fact, Billy became a Christian through all of that. He gave his life to Christ. And then uh, not only was, was he not executed, but in a really rare move, he was released from prison. And today, he's a pastor. And he speaks so eloquently about grace because he's tasted it, you know? And I think that no matter what we've done, God's goodness is still redemptive for us. There's nothing, like even, I know there might be a few of you that have actually taken someone's wife and killed them, but if, if that, even if that were the case, like God is still bigger than our mistakes. And this whole gospel is not uh, about how good we are, but it's about imperfect people falling in love with the perfect God. But then as we taste that grace, it should translate into lives of grace to the world, right? And I think that's where, where as we look at what's happening in Paris and we look at our world so starved for grace, the challenge today is what does it mean to be Christian, right? What does it mean to be followers of this Jesus who loved his enemies so much he died for them? And I, I remember as, uh, as, as uh, September 11th happened, um, we were in Philadelphia, so we're right between New York City and Washington, D.C., and it just shook our entire East Coast. Everybody knew folks that were affected by that, that lost folks they love. And, and people were trying to deal with their grief and their anger, their fear, just like folks are, are doing in Paris right now. And one of the things that happened was someone dropped a banner from City Hall that said, let's just kill them all and let God sort them out. So there were those expressions. But then I remember hearing of another group. It was families that had lost their loved ones in 9-11. And they got together to grieve. Uh, and these were folks that lost their immediate family members. So husbands, wives, children, mothers, and fathers. They got together as a support group to grieve. But then as they began to see the response of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, their prayer became, our grief is not a cry for war. And they became some of the most redemptive voices. They went on delegations to Iraq and Afghanistan, peace delegations to try to stop the aggression in the war. And they, they had such amazing stories that they ended up, um, uh, one of my friends called me and said, would you go to Iraq? And I prayed about it and I decided I wanted to go to Iraq. I've been to Iraq a couple of times now in Afghanistan, but the first time was the most powerful. I went there as, as the bombing was beginning to happen and we volunteered in hospitals, we worshiped in churches, but I went convinced that this gospel is something, when, when we think about Jesus, when Jesus said, love your enemy, he meant we can't kill them. And I, I really be began to see that there's something worth dying for but not, nothing we can kill for. And I went over there as a peacemaker 
And I experienced like some of the most horrific things I've ever seen in my life. We lived in Baghdad during the bombing of Baghdad. But as we were there, we were invited into people's homes and into people's families. We were invited to worship services. One of the most powerful services of my life was in Baghdad during the bombing in March 2003. Hundreds of us had packed this church out, and we were praying for peace. And as uh, we, we gathered in this church, people couldn't even get in. So they just kind of spilled into the streets and they were holding candles. And, and then the bishops from all the different denominations came up. And these bishops uh, from all denominations of Christianity had written a statement. And it said, it was addressed to Muslim people. And they said, we want you to know today that we love you. And we know that you are created in the image of God. That you're made from the same dirt of this earth that God breathed life into. We come from the same dysfunctional family of Abraham and Sarah. And they said, we want you to know that we love you today. And then one of the bishops pointed to the cross. And he said, this cross is foolishness to the wisdom of this world or the smarts of smart bombs. It teaches us another way to interact with evil without mirroring it. And he said this cross teaches us a love that's so powerful. It says even to our enemies, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And I was so moved by that as, a, as a, the, the, the whole community started singing Amazing Grace in Arabic. So my Arabic's not great, so I kind of hummed along, you know. But I listened to uh, them singing Amazing Grace in Arabic, and I have tears rolling down my face. And I, I went up to the altar afterwards, and I, met, I grabbed one of the bishops, and I said, Bishop, this is powerful. I feel God in this place. And then I said something ignorant. I said, I can't believe that there are so many Christians in Baghdad. And he goes, yeah, this is where Christianity started. And he pointed out the window, and he said, that's the Tigris River and the Euphrates, have you heard of them? He said, the Garden of Eden is right down the street. And he said, you didn't invent Christianity in America. You guys just domesticated it. And he said, you go back and you pray. And you tell the church that we are praying for them to remember who they are. So I think this is a time, right, that we can remember who we are as followers of Jesus, that we live in ways that don't, compa- they, they don't compute to the world that we live in because we have a different kind of imagination, right? And uh, Dr. Martin Luther King had a great line. He said, these are extreme times that we're living in. And the question isn't whether or not we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists are we going to be? Are we going to be extremists for hatred or extremists for love? And the world has seen enough religious extremists for hatred, right? Hatred hijacks the headlines almost every day these days. And we've seen Jewish extremists. We've seen Muslim extremists. We've seen Christian extremists. We've seen Christians blow up abortion clinics. We've seen Christians burn the Quran. We've seen folks that Proclaim Christ, hold signs that say God hates fags. That's sick Christianity, if it's even Christianity at all. It doesn't look much like Jesus, right? But I think what's exciting is that that some of the loudest voices haven't always been the most beautiful. But what's happening now is, is, is this beautiful movement of folks who want to be, to, to be known for our love in the world. And I know that, you know, not all of you are going to go to Iraq or, you know, Afghanistan, though some of you might. It's if you want to, just bring your parents and I'll tell them how you can get there. But anyway, you know, like, I think that, that like, 
Mother Teresa had a great line. She said, Calcuttas are everywhere if we'll only have eyes to see. So you don't have to go to India to find India. Sometimes we just have to pray that God would give us the eyes to see what it means to live out the gospel where we are. And this group of teenagers came up to me and they told me that. They, um, they said, uh, um, we, we've been thinking about what, what it means to follow Jesus. And we decided, you know, as prom was rolling around, that Jesus might not be really excited about prom. And, and I was like, what? Because I was prom king back in Tennessee, just so you know. It was a small town. But, you know, I, I, and they said, they said, yeah, it's all about celebrating the most beautiful, the most popular. And Jesus is kind of teaching us to do something different. And they told me this story about how at their prom, they had, they had uh, one of the kids that had Down syndrome. And he was voted as the prom king and crowned at that prom. And I, I think that's uh, the kind of prom that Jesus might go to. You know, I think uh, of what it means to be a Christian in our world right now with this refugee crisis. And, and, and Jesus is saying, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. If you don't welcome the stranger, you don't welcome me. What does it mean to live out God's love and God's grace in the world? And what's exciting about coming to things like this is I get to like hear your stories and um. Because there's that great scripture in Romans that says, let us not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And the great thing about being like 16 or 15, 13 years old is like nobody's convinced you that anything's impossible. And so I I, I hear these stories sometimes when I speak, and there's this one guy that I met that is just like you all. He's sitting out there listening to me preach, and then he came up afterwards, and he started telling me his story, and I'm listening to him preach and his story. And I I, I thought, I wish I had a video camera, and I realized that I was traveling with a filmmaker, and I was like, dude, grab your camera. you got to hear this. So he came over, and he caught this this young man's story on tape. So we're going to have a conversation in just a second, but check this out. Uh, this is a, a little story of someone sitting out like you. His name's Mark Weaver, and he grew up in Southern California. While I was in California, I started reading The Irresistible Revolution by Shane Claiborne. It's much my brother Rick. He sent me a copy of the book, and as I was reading it, I was totally inspired, and I was feeling convicted inside living in one of the richest communities in America, in Orange County, California, and I was part of these mega churches. I wasn't living as selfless as I could be. And would you really give all your possessions away, sell them to the poor, and follow me? And I was challenged and convicted. Would I really do something like that? But I kind of shrugged it off. I was like, well, I really don't even have any possessions. But the next day, some of my friends came to visit me from Indiana and California, and they wanted to go get on the show The Price is Right. Here it comes from the Bob Parker studio at CBS in Hollywood. We got in line, and they actually called my name up. And Mark Weaver, come on down. The actual retail price is $14.49. Mark, you're a winner. Mark, you're a winner. 60, Bob. 60. He's going to try 60. We're looking for the back of the car, and there it is. $17,260. I'll shake the hand of a winner. You have to beat 85 cents to get into the showcase, and you did it. You will be in the showcase at the end of the show. With his new range. In romantic Paris. Of her brand new convertible. $6,192. Mark is the winner. I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown on the Price is Right. I won almost $60,000 in prizes. 
I won two cars, a trip for two to Paris, a stove and a rug. It was really cool. But then I remembered the words that Shane wrote in his book, so I decided to sell the two cars that I won on the show right back to the dealership. And I used the money to fly to Uganda, Africa, and I just decided to live in orphanages for a while and just give all the money away to them. The orphanage Mark lived in is for children who lost their parents to AIDS. For each one of these beautiful children here, two people died from the AIDS epidemic. Nothing ever felt better than to just give away the money rather than to keep it and get something for myself. I've never been without a meal. I've never been without a shirt on my back. Stuff like that is the least I could do. And if everybody gave a little bit like that, I think this world would be a better place. We'll be right back. Well, I love that challenge to to have this renewed mind in Christ, that we would, we would allow Jesus to stir up our imagination so that we, could, that, that we could care, that we could give a little like Mark, that we could serve a little. And not only is it the right time for us to hear this message as we come into the holidays and, and we want to stir ourselves up for generosity and for caring for the needs of others, but it's also just a great message that, that ties in with blessing my city and the idea of caring for our parish. And I love that, that Mother Teresa says that Calcutters are everywhere, that we have an opportunity to serve Jesus by caring for needs, by reaching out in love everywhere. And so that's really what I'm gonna ask right now, that you would join me in prayer, and that we would just pray that God would show us how he wants to put this kind of challenge into practice in our lives. So if you would, let's pray together. Jesus, we do recognize how amazing your love is for us, how radical it is, how, how you pursue us. We are not worthy on our own. It's, it's not by any merit in us that, that you've said, oh, because you're so good, I love you. It, just the opposite. You love us first, and then out of your love, it, we are transformed. And it's out of your love for us that we now have the opportunity to share your love and to care for others and to show your love to other people. And, and so right now, Lord, we just ask that you'd show us how. How is it that you want us to engage? How is it that you want us to serve? How is it that you want us to love? Jesus, I've been stirred up by, by what would it take for us to rewrite the script that Christians in America would be known by their love I see it happening all over at Overlake, Lord Jesus, and I just pray that you would continue what you've started. Stir us up so that we could have your imagination for how to love and how to care. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Amen.